Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick introduces our new series of messages on the book of Acts. And today, also looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everyone. And happy Easter to all of you. I can say this, uh, even though it might be a a week late, because Carol and I were out of town visiting family last week, so I can say a belated happy Easter, but I can also say an on-time happy Easter, because as a Ukrainian, this is the weekend of the Orthodox calendar that Ukrainians celebrate Easter. So uh, it was great growing up. We had two Christmases, but I can never convince my dad that we should have two days of presents. He said, kept saying, good luck with that one, son. But this morning we begin a new study in the book of Acts. As an introduction to Acts, I want to look briefly at those five W questions. Who, what, when, where, and why? Who wrote the book of Acts? What was it about? What is it about? When was it written? Where did the events take place? And probably most importantly, why do we have the book of Acts? As part of the introduction, I'm also going to be looking at the first 11 verses in chapter 1. Well, let's take a brief journey through the book of Acts, and it will be brief. It's a a large book with a lot of action, and we have to travel close to light speed just to touch on some of the contents within the next few minutes. But Acts is a book about the formation of the early church under the covenant of grace that Jesus came to introduce the world to. It reads like a well-written history. It follows a logical plan, it includes fascinating details, and it focuses on dramatic events versus the mundane routine of everyday life. But that's not to say that this is just a historical document. Not only in the book of Acts do we see where we came from as a church, but as we look at the interaction between the apostles and the Holy Spirit, we can see what our role is in the church today. It's in the book of Acts that we first have the various names by which Christians were called. Believers, followers of the way, disciples, sect of the Nazarenes, and Christians, the name that has stuck for close to 2,000 years now. The first 12 chapters concentrate mainly on the Apostle Peter and the events that occurred in Jerusalem, igniting the fuse that would cause the explosion that saw the dawn of the church age that we are a part of today. And then the emphasis turns to Paul and his three missionary journeys as the apostle to the Gentiles and his final trip to Rome. Now, Paul is introduced early on in Acts as the man by the name of Saul. But it's in the latter half of Acts that we really get to know Paul and his ministry that God called him to. Acts records the early history of the relationship between the church and the entire Roman Empire at that time. And it also gives us important background information to cities like Corinth, Ephesus, and Philippi. Information that can help us as we try to understand the details and the intimacy of Paul's letter to those fledgling churches. Acts contains 18 different speeches by the likes of Peter, Paul, and others. These various speeches offer insight into how the apostles were beginning to interpret and to teach the events that occurred over the previous three to four years that forever changed their lives. Well, there's no mystery who wrote the book of Acts. 
Luke is following up on his first book, the account of Jesus Christ that bears his name. Acts would have written would have been written prior to AD 70, and we can come to that conclusion by what we don't see in the book of Acts. There's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70. As well, Luke doesn't record the death of Paul, which is traditionally thought to be around AD 66 to 68. And on Paul's final recorded trip to Rome, there's no mention of the torture or killing of Christians that the Emperor Nero started to, uh, uh, um, to uh, involve, taking place around A.D. 64. And Paul, who was a very well thought of historian, would certainly have included these if the document had been written after these times. So it's a very early document in the life of the apostles and the life of the early church. And it's also a hugely important document in our understanding of the church today as well. To understand just how important the book of Acts is to us today, imagine trying to read the New Testament without the book of Acts. You've just finished reading the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the account of Jesus Christ, his ministry here on earth. And at the end of these four Gospels, Jesus ascends back into heaven with his Father. Well, without the book of Acts, the next book in the New Testament would be Romans, which starts off with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Oh, wait a minute here. Who's Paul? How did we get from Jerusalem to Rome? And why is he talking about this group of people in Rome who it says are loved by God and called to be saints? It's a very important connecting, linking book for us to have in the New Testament. The apostles who, after Jesus was arrested and crucified, scattered, And now in Acts, we see a profound change in this group of men as they were being equipped by God's spirit to carry out the mission of spreading the covenant of salvation by grace. The careful recording of Luke, of the zeal of these disciples who were with Jesus, who were taught by Jesus and who are now commissioned by Jesus is a significant piece of evidence to the authenticity of the inspired writings that the Bible is compiled of. We've just come through Remembrance Day, Good Friday. We've just come through the celebration of Easter. Mark DeGuerre touched on this last Sunday in his Easter message. If the resurrection had not occurred, these disciples who were there and who were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion would in no way have had the motivation or the strength to go the distance. And for most of them, the distance was martyrdom. They gained nothing personally from a worldly perspective for what they were doing. None of them gained any monetary wealth. They gained no fame, although they were considered infamous by the Jewish uh, leadership in uh, Jerusalem. And they amassed no profitable relationships to garnish favors from. These disciples whom Jesus called his apostles would have been absolute fools to do what they did if, in fact, Christ had not risen from the grave. Why would anybody perpetuate a lie? Why would any of them face persecution, torture, imprisonment, or death if they knew Jesus was not alive? No reason at all, unless their newfound boldness was the result of being eyewitnesses, not to just the crucifixion, but to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. And it wasn't just the apostles named in Acts 
who were witnesses to Jesus being alive. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, wrote that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of his followers besides the apostles, many of whom were still alive at the time of Paul writing that letter. If this was all a lie or a myth, it would have been brought out for what it was. And indeed, it was brought out for what it was, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not just the truth, but the profound impact it had on all of these men as the early church age began. But Acts doesn't just cover the beginnings of the church age in Jerusalem. God had a much more ambitious plan than that. And that's where the Apostle Paul comes onto the scene. Part of Luke's investigation in compiling not only the Gospel of Luke, but also Acts came from him interviewing people who were present and who were witnesses to what he wrote about. But here in Acts, Luke himself becomes a part of the story. You can read places where Luke says, we went here, we went there. We see this happening once Paul comes on the scene. Paul was an apostle that is someone chosen by Jesus, and he was chosen in the most extraordinary way. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul, in recounting all those whom Jesus appeared to before his ascension, states, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Why would God pick someone like Paul? I mean, come on. Of all the men, leaders, disciples, followers he had, why choose Paul? This man had so much zeal to persecute the early followers of Christ that he volunteered to go on the road and hunt them down. Or we could look at Paul's qualifications that helped him when he changed from being a persecutor of Christians to promoter of Christ. He had a formal Jewish teaching under the likes of Gamaliel that would have allowed him audiences within Jewish synagogues. He also spoke Greek, which as a missionary to the Gentiles was vital. He had a Jewish heritage and Roman citizenship, which played out to his advantage in his travels. Even with all that going for him, surely God could have found someone other than Paul. I can't help but wonder if this is another example of God looking at the heart when man looks at at the outside. Do you remember when God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel? Samuel was all set to anoint Eliab, son of Jesse, as the next king of Israel. But God said to the prophet in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God chose Paul for his heart. Paul persecuted the early Christians because he thought he was following God. He thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. I believe it's very possible that God knew he just had to redirect Paul's zeal. And that's just what he did on the road to Damascus. And what a remarkable transformation that was. It must have been exciting for Luke to not just be along for the ride, such as an observer is embedded within a military unit. Although there's no indication that Luke was ever considered to be an apostle, I believe he was more than just an observer on Paul's missionary journeys. I believe he would have become a very close friend to Paul, and we can see the evidence in that as we 
read about the closeness that he had with Paul. And travel they did. The book of Acts records over 50 places that Paul visited. Places like Amphipolis, Neopolis, Nicolopolis, Hierapolis, Chios, Salamis, Ptolemy, Antipatris, Tarsus, Ephesus, Miletus, Snidus, Damascus, Samos, Cyprus, Rhodes, Asoth, Athens, Atelia, Berea, Chinchiria, Claudia, Kos, Sidon, Rome, Salom, Samothrace, Derby. I'm just halfway there yet. Derby, Lucidia, Lycia, Lystra, Philippi, Puteli, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Three Taverns, Fair Havens, Troas, Tyre, Myra, Caesarea, Jerusalem, Iconium, Regium, Antioch, Corinth, Syracuse, Cilicia, Malta, Mytilene, Pathos, Patra, Perga. I mean, if there had been a travel rewards card at that time, this guy would have maxed out his benefits. There's a song that was written by an Australian cowboy, if you can believe it. It was made more famous in North America by Hank Snow and the likes of Johnny Cash. And it's titled, I've Been Everywhere, Man. This is a wonderful song to listen to if you've never heard it before. And I can just imagine if Johnny Cash and Hank Snow had lived in the time of Paul, the three of them could have collaborated on this song and just reworked the lyrics a little bit to talk about all the places that Paul's been. Only they would have changed the name from I've been everywhere, man, to I've preached everywhere, man. I, I briefly considered doing that, changing the lyrics and singing the song for you. But I love you guys too much to put you through that torture. <laughs> But go home this, today. This is your homework. Google Hank Snow, I've Been Everywhere, Man. Listen to that song and just picture Paul and his travels during that song. Well, why did the covenant Jesus came to proclaim spread as quickly as it did throughout the known world after he returned to his Father in heaven? I mean, there was no internet, no phone network, no radio, no television. By today's standards, we would think that the spread was slow. But by that first century A.D., it was anything but slow. To shed some light on that, I think we need to look at the number of social and political events that took place that all coincided together at this particular time in history and how they came to play in the spreading of this gospel message. A number of things came together to make the conditions ripe for this to happen. Pax Romana is a Latin word that translates to Roman peace. This is a period when the Roman Empire experienced expansion and it was a peacefulness. It was a forced peacefulness through the Roman military, but it was a peacefulness nonetheless that was exhibited that had not been shown up to that time in the world. And this Pax Romana lasted into the third century A.D. The territory that fell under the Roman peace included all of the territory around the Mediterranean Sea that is the northern part of Africa, Egypt, Israel, Syria, Turkey, Greece, Italy, even parts of France and Britain. It was a large chunk of land that was under Rome's control. And although travel for the apostles and others was still not without danger, it was a lot safer than it had been at any time prior to that. As well, Rome built a, a road network that was unequaled at that time, unparalleled. And there are still portions of that road that can be found today. And in all, Rome built 80,000 kilometers of roads that were paved with stone. By around 100 BC, the Romans also adopted a modified form of the Greek alphabet, which allowed for a much more sophisticated and deeper form of the written language. This made the written communication much more effective than it had ever been. 
Combine that with the use of papyrus or leather instead of, clo- instead of stone or uh, clay tablets for uh, documents, and you have a much more easily transportable form of document. And the Koine Greek spoken language dominated trade and civic or governmental interactions throughout the Roman Empire, much like English is the uh, language of commerce today in the world. Combine all these things together, good roads for transportation, a time of relative peace under Roman control, a written language and a medium to write on that made correspondence effective, and a common spoken language, and you get a narrow period in the history of the world when all these things converged that had not occurred before this, in which the salvation of grace gospel could spread like fire spreads across a field of dry grass. The timing was right. It was ripe for something to happen. I don't believe it was just a coincidence that all of these dominoes lined up in a row like this. Everything was in place for a crusade to take place, and when Jesus ascended to heaven, the first domino was touched, and the chain reaction began. Well, what was the force that caused that first domino to topple? It was the persecution of the early believers after the death of Stephen that caused all except the apostles to flee from Jerusalem into the likes of Samaria and Judea, taking their faith with them. I've heard it said that the church spreads the fastest and the greatest when persecution is at work. Acts depicts the struggles, the victories, the establishing of the early church and the controversies of the early church. Well, let's begin the journey through this book in earnest by looking at the first 11 verses in chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many other convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly... Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Luke starts off in chapter 1 with an introduction to a writing of his writing to a man named Theophilus. Now, this is in all likelihood the same Theophilus that Luke introduced his account of the life of Jesus to in the gospel that bears his name. Luke doesn't explain who Theophilus is, but then again, why should he? Obviously, these two men were well known to each other. There was no need for an introduction. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it reads, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. <coughs> By all appearance, the book of Acts is the next installment of Luke's account to Theophilus of the events that he was learning about that was changing the life of the world around him. These first 11 verses in Acts are a recap of the end of the Gospel of Luke. The book of Luke ends with Jesus appearing to many of his disciples to encourage them and to dispel any rumors or doubts that they had about his resurrection. As well, Jesus gave them instructions to wait in Jerusalem until, as Luke put it, they would be clothed with power from on high. It's interesting here that after Jesus' resurrection, he only appeared to his followers during the days prior to his ascension to heaven. No longer was he involved with the, tax, with the task of authenticating himself before all of Israel as the Christ or the Messiah. His last days on earth after his resurrection were all about preparing his disciples for their new role as missionaries to, first of all, Jerusalem, then Judea and, Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus departs from them in a most miraculous way. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the skies. He was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back to you the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I can just picture these angels all of a sudden standing in the midst of the disciples, looking up into heaven with the disciples, looking back at the disciples, back up into heaven again, back at the disciples, finally saying, who are you guys looking at? Jesus is returning someday, and that return will be unmistakable and just as miraculous. He's not going to be some parachutist coming down through the clouds. My first job that I had as a pilot was flying the plane at the local skydiving club. And I'll never forget the one story that the, um, one of the parachutists told me about when one day one of them got out just a little bit too far away from the airport. And on his way down, he knew he wasn't going to make it back to the airport, so he had to find another landing spot. Well, there was this big open field behind a Baptist church that was located right next to the airport, so that's what he aimed for. It just so happened that day that the Baptists were having an outdoor event. And I can just picture some of them looking up, thinking, Lord, is that you coming? <laughs> I think Baptists are smarter than that. What are you laughing at? You don't believe me? <laughs> they are smart people. When Jesus was with them in those final days, he told his disciples who he had chosen to be his apostles, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit played a very prominent role in the life of the early church, and he does so in the life of the church today as well. Luke mentions the Holy Spirit 57 times in the book of Acts. Some have even suggested that the title of this book should actually be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't take very long before we see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in chapter 2. And its influence and power is evident throughout the early church. J.B. Phillips, an author who lived in the 20th century, had this to say about the portrait of the early church. The sick are not merely prayed about, they are healed, often suddenly and dramatically. 
Human nature is changed. The fresh air of heaven blows gustily through these pages. I love that description of the Holy Spirit. The fresh air of heaven blows gustily through these pages. The power of God was at work in the early church through the Holy Spirit. Luke recorded how the Holy Spirit gave the ability for the apostles to speak in tongues, which was literally the different languages, the different national languages of all of those around them, so that they could hear the message of the gospel in their own native tongue. Or how God's Holy Spirit empowered Stephen to address a much more learned audience. The Holy Spirit directed and guided the early church in every way. The early missionaries like Peter, Philip, Paul, John, and others were led by the Holy Spirit in all aspects of their work. Just like there was no set ways when Jesus walked this earth that he used to heal people, the Holy Spirit came upon or entered or was received by the followers of Jesus Christ at different times and in different ways. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the group gathered suddenly in a room without warning, but in a clearly unmistakable way. At times, the apostles would ask a group of believers in Jesus Christ, have you received the Holy Spirit? And when the people said, we don't even know who he is. Paul placed his hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Other times the Holy Spirit came upon the people without warning while the apostles were speaking with them. The Holy Spirit came upon people, as Luke wrote about it, before they were baptized, after they were baptized, and in some cases, as in Samaria, quite a while after they were baptized. For these Samaritan followers of Jesus, it took a visit from Peter and John after Philip had evangelized and baptized many of them before they actually received the Holy Spirit. Not having that predictability means nobody could mistakenly believe that the apostles had any control over the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon the sorcerer was someone who had offered money to Peter and John, thinking that they did indeed have control over the Holy Spirit, and he offered them money to buy that power from them. But that was not theirs to give. As part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit empowers many, but is controlled by no human. As we work through this book, the speakers who are assigned these various passages are going to have the opportunity to expand on this. And I really look forward to this as we go through this book. But a question arises, why didn't the Holy Spirit immediately indwell or fill people when they believed in Jesus Christ and became a follower of his? Such as Acts 8 and Acts 19 are very clear examples that it took a while for this to happen. Why did it take time in this case for the Holy Spirit to do this? As the message of Christ's gospel started to spread beyond Jerusalem, it would have been so much easier if the Holy Spirit had just entered these people as soon as they believed and to dwell within them. One explanation might be, and I use the word might here, one explanation might be that if new followers of Jesus had never heard of the Holy Spirit, like some had indicated, they would not have recognized this new roommate within them, or perhaps they could have been confused by his presence. It's also possible that perhaps they could have even mistaken the Holy Spirit within them as an unclean or an evil spirit if they knew nothing about him. We have to remember the early church didn't have the Bible that we have today to help us to understand. They needed someone to come and teach them. But when the apostles arrived, they could explain and teach the the people about the Holy Spirit and his role in their life. So from a logical standpoint, it wouldn't make sense if the Holy Spirit would wait to be received by the followers until they understood who he is. I'm not saying this is the reason, but it would make sense if, in fact, it was the reason. Another explanation revolves around the two definitions of how the Holy Spirit works in our life. 
when we accept Christ and choose to follow him, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. We become his temple, a holy temple for him to abide in. But we can also be filled with the Holy Spirit at times in our lives. Stephen was in Acts 6 and 7 when he debated through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit against those who opposed the message of Christ. And he was given a glimpse of heaven just before he was stoned. This filling of the Holy Spirit empowers people to be used by God in the work of advancing his kingdom. This filling of the Holy Spirit does not occur in every believer or every believer the same way or even perpetually in those believers for whom it occurs. But we are given examples in the book of Acts of how God's Spirit was able to use the willing people to spread the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. Perhaps this is part of the answer to the question, why didn't the Holy Spirit immediately indwell or fill people when they believed in Christ and became a follower of Christ? Perhaps there was more a point of the Holy Spirit waiting until the time was right to fill those Christians with the gifts of the Holy Spirit that they would need to be effective ambassadors for Christ in this newfound role. One caution that I believe needs to be made here is not to assume that the Holy Spirit is going to work through everyone in the same way who puts their faith and trust in Christ. What I mean by that is we're given a look and a glimpse into the lives of the apostles of the early church as it grew and how the Holy Spirit worked through them to see it grow. But we're not given a look into the, how the Holy Spirit worked in and through the lives of all of the people. For some, we are simply told they received the Holy Spirit. It'd be a mistake to assume that the Holy Spirit works the same way through all people and in all people to advance his kingdom when we come to faith in Christ. For example, Paul taught the Corinthians about the gift of speaking in tongues and the cautions of the use around it. In today's church age, I've only heard one relatively recent um, occurrence of this actually happening. There's a story that I heard of a pastor in uh, Winnipeg who at the close of his message was praying, and all of a sudden he realized he couldn't understand what he was saying. He was speaking in a language that he didn't know. And he was perplexed until after the service, some Inuit visitors who had come down from the Arctic and were visitors at his church to take in the service came up to him and thanked him for praying in their native tongue. The only thing was this pastor could not speak Inuktitut. This is a rare example, I think, that we see today sometimes of how the Holy Spirit can still work through someone to reach another group of listeners in their own language. But it's not as common of an occurrence, I think, as perhaps it was in the early days of the church. God's Holy Spirit will use Christians if we allow him in whatever way he deems best. If that's speaking in tongues, so be it. If it's through teaching his word, so be it. If it's through wisdom and leadership, so be it. Whatever it may be, the best advice I can give is don't get caught up in trying to dictate to God how he should use you, but rather open, him, open yourself up to his leading and see how he'll take you along the path for the plan that he has worked out for you already. And I look forward to the journey that God's Holy Spirit will be taking us on in the coming weeks as we travel along with the likes of Peter, Philip, John, Paul, Luke, and, and others as they recount their adventures that they had in the life of the early church. Heavenly Father, we, did, we do come before you this morning in full recognition that uh, we have no power at all to see your gospel advance. We are merely the messengers 
We are merely the people that you have chosen to say the words of how you love people, how you want to interact with people, how you want to be a part of their lives, how you warn people, the warning of what will happen to those who turn their face away from you and never accept you. Lord, we are your ambassadors and your messengers. And I pray that we would always come before you in all humility, knowing that it is not through our power that people are saved, but it is through the work of your gospel, through the leading of your Holy Spirit, and through the grace of your Father, who put this plan in action so long ago, not for his benefit, but for ours. Lord, we love you. We worship you and adore you. And I pray that our service has been a blessing to you and that our prayers, our words, and our singing have been a sweet fragrance to you. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.